starting a new series today on pursuing the presence of God. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to take us several weeks to go through this. It's going to be awesome. We want to create a sustainable environment. We want to create a sustainable environment. What is that? A place where Holy Spirit doesn't just come and visit and touch down and leave, but a place where the Holy Spirit comes, remains, abides, and he stays permanently. That's what the new covenant is all about. I remember when we were living in Australia, I was praying just about a sermon series, and I was saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to speak to the church? What do you want me to share with your people? And I was driving up the freeway, and I looked, and I saw this van, and on the side it said, Creating a Sustainable Environment. And as I looked at that, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me, and he said, This is what I want to do in my church. Now, I know that it's all about you know, making sure that our environment is clean and, and the, the green stuff, the environmental stuff, but God wants to create a sustainable environment of what we sang about in that very last song, that heaven will come to earth. Jesus told us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to pray, that it would happen. And he wasn't just referring to, you know, when he came back, something, uh, you know, in the sweet by and by. But he was talking about now because Jesus preached the kingdom. He said in Matthew 10, 7, as you go to his disciples, as you go, preach, say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Bring heaven to earth. Change things on the earth. Let that tangible sense of the kingdom of heaven, the presence of God, the atmosphere of his glory be in our midst. And that's what the Lord has called his church to. When you read the book of Acts, you cannot deny the moving and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There is something heavenly going on in the days of the early church. Later on, they were accused of turning the whole world upside down. In reality, these guys' perception, the culture's perception, was so skewed that they felt the early church was turning the world upside down, when in reality, they were turning it right side up. Come on now. And so God wants us to do something so powerful in our culture, in our families, in our church, wherever we are, our workplace, that people cannot deny that the power of God is at work. You know, the presence of God is tangible. It's tangible. You can feel the presence of God. You can sense the presence of God. People who don't know Jesus can feel and experience the presence of God. I remember when I was a teenager, I didn't know the Lord. I was a typical rebellious teenager. When I was a kid, I had powerful encounters with the Lord. Powerful encounters with the Lord. I was healed in a Catherine Kuhlman service as a little child. I sat in that atmosphere several times when I was a kid. You know, in my, I said, when I grew up, I had, a, I had a drug problem in my household. My mama used to drug me to church. <laughs> and she would take me to church and to these places, and I'd go see the hunters, and, and I'd see Benny Hinn when he first started out, and he came into our house, did a Bible study once, and, and uh, you know, Catherine Kuhlman and all these things. I saw miracles. I saw God move. And I experienced the presence of God tangibly and powerfully. But as I got into my teenage years, I drifted from the Lord. I became just like people around me. In fact, in some ways, I became even worse. 
And I remember one day a friend of mine, he contacted me and we wanted to go camping. And he said, look, if you're going to go, if we're going to go camping, he said, I need you to help me do something. I've got to paint an apartment building and it's, it's not a lot. It's just a kitchen area. But can you meet me on Saturday morning and help me paint this apartment and then we can go camping? So I agreed and I showed up there and I remember as we were standing there, uh, we just knocked on the door and the door opened to this apartment building. And I am telling you guys, when that door opened, I was hit with the glory of God. There was a strong presence of the Lord. There was like a light that I saw in that room. I was not even serving Jesus. I was in darkness. I was living in sin. But I found out that this couple that lived there were so close to God. They spent so much time in prayer that that apartment building was literally replete with the presence of God. And as I walked in, I began to weep. I was so hard-hearted, so far from God, but I walked into that atmosphere and I began to weep. The presence of the Lord was there. Lynn already referred to Jacob's experience as recorded in Genesis 28, that place called Bethel. You know, at one point, Jacob said this. He said, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And God wants us not to be able to just cognitively you know, just acknowledge that his presence is everywhere. Obviously, God is everywhere. But there is something that, that the Hebrews referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. That's the tangible presence of God. It becomes demonstrative. You know, remember when Solomon dedicated the temple and what ended up happening after the sacrifice is that the glory of the Lord came in and filled the house. There was a cloud And the priests were not even able to enter and minister because it was so strong, so powerful, so thick. We've had the privilege of experiencing something similar to that on occasion. I remember one time when we were ministering in the United States and we had been ministering for a few nights, and the final night, the presence of God came down so powerfully. His glory was so real, so strong, that people couldn't stand. Everyone hit the floor. And people began to cry out. People began to, to worship God. And when you read the New Testament, this is exactly what happened. There was such a strong presence of the Lord. Wherever Jesus went, wherever the Apostle Paul traveled and journeyed, so real, so strong. And it was the manifestation of the person of God himself. God is with us. He's in us. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he's in us. The Bible says in Romans 8, 11, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Come on. How am I going to make my car payment? Well, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. How am I going to overcome these parenting challenges? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. How am I going to walk in a place of wholeness and health and be restored? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that was in Jesus when he was on the earth is with his people. We just need to learn how to receive that ministry of the spirit of God. We have to learn how to what we might call host 
the presence of the Lord. Listen, Acts 10.38 says that everywhere Jesus went, he did good and he healed all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, healed everyone, for God was with him. That's what it says. And how did that happen? It was the anointing. It was the presence, the very person of God accompanying him. You know the story that when Jesus was, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, went to the River Jordan, there he was baptized by John. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 1.32, it says this. John testified. He said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. The King James says, and make its abode on him. Remain on him. Make its abode on him. The word in the Greek language literally means this. Not to depart. Not to leave. To continue to be present. In other words, from that point on, the very person, the very anointing and presence of the Holy Spirit was with Jesus wherever he went. And that's why he was able to make such an impact upon people's lives. I've already mentioned Catherine Kuhlman. I don't know if you guys have ever heard any of the testimonies of the stories. Several of her books that she wrote and documented these testimonies. I I was there as a kid. I saw some of those miracles personally. I witnessed miracles like this. One of the things that I can tell you about all of the miracles that happened in her ministry was that it wasn't just as a result of her laying hands or even praying for someone specifically. There were so many people. If you go back and and you do a, a Google search and you look at the crowds, people were lined up for days even to be able to get into one of those meetings. And there would be thousands of people waiting. And there was no way she's able to lay hands on every person. Couldn't be done, practically. So what happened is she would pray a prayer. And what would happen is when she prayed a prayer, sometimes she'd call out words of knowledge. She'd say, there's somebody up in the balcony here. You have this type of cancer. She'd call it out, and people would be instantly healed. People would get out of wheelchairs. People would walk. Blind eyes would open. The deaf would hear. It was amazing. Well, one of the things that I learned through studying the life of Catherine Kuhlman is that there were many miracles that happened even before she came out on the stage and began ministering. People would walk in to that atmosphere, into that facility, that that auditorium, and as they were sitting there, as they were walking through, people would get healed. One of my friends, his mother, was... Very skeptical. Didn't believe in that. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't know how you can say you're a Christian, read the Bible, and you don't believe in miracles. But ultimately, she was very skeptical. And so what happened one day was when Catherine Kuhlman, she, she was asked to attend one of the meetings, so she, she, re, she went reluctantly, but she attended. Catherine Kuhlman walked out, went up to the stage, and walked by this woman. As she walked by the woman, 
the woman felt the power of God go through her. And I forget exactly what was wrong with her, but it was, it was quite serious. And she was healed just by this woman walking by. You know, the Bible says in Acts chapter 5 that people would bring the sick out on the streets of Jerusalem, that perhaps the shadow of Peter would fall on them. Perhaps the shadow of Peter would fall on them. If you read that, guys, don't take my word, read it. It's in the book. It says that every person that came, and it says great multitudes came from the surrounding countryside. I'm going to say a couple of people, great multitudes came. And it states unequivocally that every one of them was healed. Acts chapter 5. Every one of them was healed. That's amazing. So there's this thing called the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. When we step into the presence, when we step into the anointing, things change. You can't be grumpy when you get into the anointing of God. Because the Bible says, in his presence is fullness of joy. (laughs) At his right hand, pleasures evermore. When we get into the presence of God, everything changes. When we step into that, we have the perspective of heaven. We see things the way God sees things. The times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. The Bible says that we will experience rest from the presence of the Lord. The presence of God changes everything in our lives. So what is revival? What is revival? Well, the word revive is used several times in the scriptures. But there are also synonyms that are used, talking, for example, times of refreshing. These are all really compatible terms speaking about something powerful and profound that happens when we get into the very presence of God and the Holy Spirit is moving. I've seen people change in, change more in, in six months of coming into a church where the presence of God remains, rests, and abides. I've seen people in six months change more than people who go to a church where that presence isn't there in 20 years. I've seen six months them change more than a person who would attend a church where the presence of God is not there for 20 years. It accelerates everything. It changes everything. The promise, and we'll get into this in the series, the promise of Jesus was to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Right? Jesus promised, I will, and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, if we just preach a gospel that is repent and be baptized, that's not the full gospel. That's not what Jesus taught. Theologically, we are missing the whole point. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you power, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, to be my witnesses. The word witness in the Greek language, we get our English word martyr. How many want to sign up for that? Power to be a martyr. Yes, Lord, I want power. Okay, to be a martyr. Don't know, I don't really. But we get our English word martyr. But the idea, of course, is that we know 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyrs. They died. But the idea here is not just a physical martyrdom, but also a spiritually dying to our flesh. 
Dying to our own desires. Dying to, to human effort. Dying to trying to do things in our own power and our own ability. And stepping into a place called the supernatural. Where we begin to see God move and, and change things. And prayers all of a sudden start to be answered. Because it's not just us praying now. It's the Holy Spirit praying in us and through us and with us. People start to be healed and, and doors start to open because we're giving place to the Holy Spirit. The secret of revival is simply this. Revival will occur in an individual, a church, a city, or perhaps even a nation that has learned how to welcome and host the very person and presence of God himself. The more people that learn how to walk in that place the more we'll see revival. I love 2 Corinthians 3. If you reach, actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul is talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he says, in the Old Covenant, there was glory. And he references Moses coming down from the mountain after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God and how his face shone. And he had a veil over his face. And interestingly, we know that Moses got upset with the children of Israel. They were worshiping the golden calf, and he smashed the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. And he went back up again for another 40 days and 40 nights. And that time, God himself wrote the commandments on snow. But you know, when Moses came down and his face shone, a lot of times we look at that and we think, that's so amazing. I wish I could see that today. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that the glory of the Old Covenant was fading. It was fading. And the reason why Moses veiled his face was so the children of Israel would not behold the fading of that glory. It's amazing. You can read that. Then he continues and 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, and he talks about the glory of the new covenant. And he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, all, he's talking to new covenant believers now, but we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So in the old covenant, the, the glory in the new covenant, the glory does not fade, it actually increases. We go from glory to glory. We go from one level of glory to the next level of glory. It is possible for us to increase in glory to such an extent that we carry that presence, we live in that presence, that when the day comes for us to literally step over time into eternity, it's almost like it's seamless. Think about that, Selah. God has something so amazing for his people. The Passion Translation puts it this way, the same two verses. Now the Lord... I'm referring to is the Holy Spirit. And wherever He is Lord, listen to this, wherever who is Lord? Thank you. Holy Spirit, there is what? Liberty! Isn't it interesting? The, the Greek word Lord is kurios, and kurios is 
typically used of Jesus himself. But here, the Holy Spirit is called Lord. He is the Spirit of Christ. He's called Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. Wherever the Holy Spirit is allowed to be master, allowed to be king, that's the equivalent of the word, there is liberty. But where the Holy Spirit is quenched, where the Holy Spirit is grieved, where we do not allow him to have his way, then there is the opposite. There's rules and religion and misery. No freedom. There's sin. There's bondage. There's torment. But the Holy Spirit, whenever he's Lord, there's freedom. And we can all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces. And with no veil, we all become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. Listen to this. We are being transfigured into his very image as we move from one brighter level of glory to another. And this glorious transfiguration comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, from one level to another. That's God's plan. That's what he desires for us. You know, last week when we prayed for James and Heidi for their wedding, which took place yesterday, I jokingly said to them, you know, some people say marriage is like a bath, right? After a while, it's not so hot. And that's the way it is with many of us with our relationship with God. You know, we, we get saved, radically saved. We're on fire for God. We pray. We, we're not going to miss church. And then something happens where we, we fall from our first love. We lose our joy. Our, our passion wanes. And, and we're not in that place where we are as committed as we're on fire for God as we once were. But that's not the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord is that we go from glory to glory, that we get closer to Him, that our passion increases, that we become more full of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, transfigured into His very image. We become more like Jesus as we move from one brighter level of glory to another. See, church, we're called to create this sustainable environment where the presence of the Lord not only abides, but increases in intensity and fervor. The early church learned to cultivate the atmosphere of heaven on earth. They understood that they were called to be the very abode or dwelling place of God. They were called to become the very abode The dwelling place, the habitation, the temple, whatever way you want to put it, of God. They understood that. Paul, the great theologian he was, talks about this. And in so many of his letters, we are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says, our bodies are individually. But then in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Greek language is plural. He's speaking to the church and he says, you, the church, you are the temple of the living God. In Ephesians 2, verse 22, he says, you are being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. 
In Ephesians 1.23, in the Amplified Bible, he says, The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For in that body lives the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. We are the abode of God. The word, there's two different words that are used in these verses, but they both mean the same thing. We become the dwelling place of God. That word means to house permanently. In other words, it speaks of habitation, not visitation. Come on now. God doesn't want weekend visitation rights. He's not like some, you know, one who has limited access. He wants to live in us. He wants to dwell in us. He wants to make his residence in us individually and collectively as his church. It's an amazing thing. You see, what is the problem in in the church today? And guys, I've traveled to probably over 60 nations. And I can tell you this, that there's not only uh, an issue in the Western culture with this, but it's happening in many places in the world. There's a few places that understand it better. And those are the places in the world, for the most part, where the Christians are being persecuted. But understand this. Modern religion focuses on... El todo sea por un beso, deal. Ya soñabas con llegar a McDonald's, ordenar tus McNuggets y tu Big Mac de siempre. Con extra pepinillos, extra salsa especial, extra cebolla, porque tú eres así, extra. Pero luego recuerdas que estás en una cuarta cita. Y quizá ordenar cebollas extra no sea la mejor movida. Hay un meal para cada cita en McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como McNuggets de 10 piezas y una Big Mac por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar, producto individual a precio regular. On filling church buildings with people. Resulting in what we might call church growth. But the gospel that Jesus preached is about filling people with God himself. Resulting in the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As we become kingdom carriers, as we, as we literally become, learn how to host his presence and his glory. Wherever we go, we take the glory. We take the power. We take the anointing, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible teaches is in us. What? I'm sorry, but this is true. This is the scripture. This is the word of God. We're going to bring change and transformation. The more sensitive and the more aware we become of our calling to host his presence. Through the church, through you, through me, God's glory is manifested on the earth. We become the dwelling place of God. The New Testament followers, and and particularly, I want to look at the life of Jesus this morning. The New Testament shows us how intentional these believers were in allowing the Holy Spirit to have freedom to rule and reign and do what he wants to do in their midst. Remember, the Lord, the Spirit is the Lord, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is 
freedom. When the Holy Spirit is allowed to have his way. Many churches today, I found that many Pentecostal churches in Canada have completely disregarded the Holy Spirit. It's happening in other countries as well. But many Pentecostal churches have completely no sense of value for the Holy Spirit these days. We can do it ourselves. We've got the money. We've got the programs. We've got the gifted personnel. We can do it ourselves. We can get it done. We can grow the church. We can impact people's lives. And I want, we have the scripture, and we need the scripture, but you need to understand something. The scripture, without the Holy Spirit, doesn't do anything. It just feeds our intellect. The Bible says that the word, that the Bible says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. One translation can literally be that the word of God, the rhema of God, is literally the sword that is, that is wielded by the Holy Spirit. That's what it literally means in the Greek language. If the word of God is not being wielded by the Holy Spirit, it's nothing. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life, is what Paul said. We need the anointing. And when the anointing coupled with the Word of God comes together, boom! Explosion! Power! We have whatever it takes to see people's lives changed. The Lord said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and life. They are spirit and Holy Spirit, pneuma, and life, zoe. There's something powerful that happens when Jesus spoke the word. It cut to people's hearts. No man ever spoke like him. He speaks with authority. He gives commandments, and evil spirits come out of people. The sick are healed. Miracles take place. Why? The Pharisees spoke the same word. He said, he's he's, he's different. He's not like the Pharisees who are boring. He said, there's something passionate and exciting about Jesus. He speaks with authority. It's the anointing. God is speaking through his son. Do you believe that God is speaking to you this morning? Because the Holy Spirit is here. And his word is coming forth in life. Hallelujah. Do you know, 2 Timothy 1.14 in the message says this, Guard this precious thing placed in your custody by the Holy Spirit who works in us. Guard it. The word in the original language is a military term. It means to be watchful by keeping your eye upon it. It speaks of a sentry. Have you ever gone to Buckingham Palace? You see those guys that the beef eater and those guys are standing there and they're not looking at you. They're focused. But I'll tell you what, if you think they're daydreaming or they're not alert, just try to breach security. Just try to get through. See, the idea is that of a sentinel, of a, of a, of a sentry, someone who's watching, who's guarding. They're focused. They're alert. They've got their eye on what really matters. And so he says, guard, guard this thing, this deposit is what it means. 
Guard the presence of God. Guard this gift, the Holy Spirit. Do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guard this salvation. Guard my presence. Guard my anointing. Guard whatever it is that comes from God. Guard it. What I placed in your custody is stewards, not owners. We don't own anything. We're stewards. And so guard it. He's saying, I want you to be cautious. Because it is definitely possible for us to hinder the working of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We can stifle his activity. Hello, do you believe that? We can stifle the Spirit. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. God's Word translation says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible uses the metaphor of fire to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit in fire. As powerful as fire is, it can be extinguished. There's at least two ways fire can be extinguished. Number one, by smothering it. Number two, by starving it. The, the first um, process is, a, is quicker. The second takes longer. But both result in the same thing. The fire goes out. We can smother it. We can throw a wet blanket on a fire and it will go out rather quickly. But by starving it, we simply neglect putting fuel on the fire. We neglect stoking the fire. And as a result, after time, it simply burns out. In Leviticus 6, 12, and 13, the Bible says, The fire in the altar shall be kept burning. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 13, A fire shall be always burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Fire shall never go out. Where is the fire? Has your fire gone out? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire? Is there a fire for God burning in your life? Jesus wants to restore that to you. Fan it into flame. Stoke the fire. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Stop doing those things that are comparable to putting a wet blanket on a fire. Read Ephesians 4. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 says that those people were always in a place where they were doing despite unto the Spirit of God. Acts 7.51. It says you uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Ghost is what Stephen said. You always resist. We can resist. We can grieve. We can do despite. We can quench the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing. That God, the same God who said the power of life and death is in the tongue, has given us the ability to stir up, to fan into flame, or to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 1.6 Therefore I remind you to stir up 
the gift of God which is in you. Stir it up, the gift of God which is in you, Paul says to Timothy, which came as a result of the laying on of hands. He's speaking about when Timothy received the Holy Spirit. See, any man of God that was used powerfully by the Lord, including Jesus himself, was intentional in both pursuing and protecting the anointing or the presence of God in their lives. Consider Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 says this. That Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy more than his brothers. Jesus was anointed more above all his companions, all his brothers, all his sisters. The idea is what, what he's saying is, is that there was no one who walked in the fullness of the spirit like Jesus. Do you understand that when Jesus came to the earth... According to Philippians 2, he put aside his divine attributes as God, his deity. He became a man, and he literally needed to be filled, controlled, led, empowered, governed by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan. Though he is God and always was and always will be, he put aside his deity, his divine attributes, and lived as a man controlled, anointed, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he became the second Adam, meaning he came to show us how we are to live as well. He came to model, to showcase how you and I are supposed to live. We're supposed to live controlled, anointed, empowered, governed, led by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not about going to church. Church is it's important. Forsake not the assembling together of yourself. Go to church. You get stirred up in a good church. You get, you get fed. You, you, you worship God together. You can pray for one another. You have fellowship. All of that is important. But ultimately, the supreme purpose of our salvation is to know God. John 17, verse 3 Jesus said this, and this is eternal life. What? And this is eternal life. It's pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. When I die. No. And this is eternal life. As he's praying to his father, he says, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God, the Father, knowing the Son. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 talks about the fellowship or the sweet communion with the Holy Spirit. It's having relationship with the Trinity, with the Godhead. Knowing God personally, powerfully, being full of His presence. Jesus was anointed more than all others. He hated iniquity. He hated sin and he loved righteousness. There's a powerful scripture in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. I want to look at it. It says that Jesus in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. 
You got ahead of me there. Can you just turn, put that slide off for a minute? Thank you. Listen to this. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he prayed, he cried out. John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Christ. We often refer to it as his high priestly prayer. It was literally happening at the time where he was about to be arrested. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed and go to the cross and be crucified for us. And he prays. He prays for himself, first of all. Then he prays for his followers. And then he prays for everyone in every age who will come to believe in the gospel. He was praying for you way back then. As he was just outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying for you and me. Isn't that powerful? He's praying for us. And when he was in that garden, the Bible says that he began, when he was praying, he began to to sweat as it is great drops of blood. Do you know, if that literally happened, if he was sweating drops of blood, do you understand what happened? Physiologically, most likely, the pericardium sac that contains the fluids around the body had ruptured. When that happens, your body fluids and your blood mix together. It's impossible to live. One of the Gospels says that the angel of the Lord came and ministered to him. Meaning what? That he would have died in there, in that time of prayer, and he wouldn't have made it to the cross, but the angel of the Lord came and answered him and delivered him and sustained him. The Bible says that he cried out to God to be saved from death. Now, he was not praying, I don't want to go to the cross. Not at all. Because Jesus understood very clearly that he needed to go to the cross. And the Bible is so clear that he actually says this in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He wasn't praying that he wouldn't go to the cross. He wouldn't die. But he realized, and he did pray for the cup to be removed. He knew that in the natural, because he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He knew in the natural he would die in the garden. He would die when he was praying. But the angel of the Lord came and sustained him so he could go to the cross. You know what the scripture tells us? Because I really believe scholars have two different opinions. Some say, well, yeah, he was praying so he wouldn't die in that time of prayer. So he needed to go to the cross. I believe that's true. But I also believe there's another side to this. When Jesus was praying that he would be saved from death. When he prayed for the cup to be removed and he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but your will. When he was praying that, he was praying that his father would remove the cup Not of physical death, but 
of being separated from the presence of his Father. That's why, going back to Hebrews 5 or 7 in the Amplified, we see this very clearly. It says very clearly that Jesus was heard when he offered up prayers and supplication. Because of his reverence toward God, then the Amplified puts in brackets his godly fear, his piety, and then adds this long amplification, hence the name, the Amplified Bible, that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. Do you understand the word in Greek for fear is phobe, phobos. That's the normal word. But this word is a completely different Greek word. It's not talking about fear. This word literally means to be cautious, to be extremely careful and meticulous, to have great concern, and to live circumspectly. That's what this word is. So Jesus was heard because of his fear towards God, and he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. When he went to the cross and he cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, Jesus was crushed because he was separated from the bright presence of his Father. Jesus lived in perpetually in the presence of his Father. He lived in communion with his Father at all times. He knew exactly what it was that his Father wanted him to do, what pleased his Father. And he knew as a result of the sins of the world being placed on him for a season that the Father would have to turn around, that that fellowship, that communion with the Son would be broken because the sins of the world was placed on the spotless Lamb of God. Many believe that when he was praying in the garden and he was speaking of the cup being removed, he was referring to that day when the Father would turn his back on the Son and he would be separated from him spiritually. Jesus died, but he learned to live in the presence of his Father all the days of his life. He had great concern. He lived circumspectly. He, he would not do anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit. He honored his Father. He delighted in his presence more than anything else. And he could not live without the presence of his Father. Moses was told by the Lord, I'm not going to take you and this people into this people into the promised land because you, they've been rebellious, they're stiff-necked. And, but I'll send an angel and my angel will go with you. Depart and go up. I'll send my angel. He'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and so on. Go up to a land flow with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. 
for you are a stiff-necked people. Think about that. Most people today would say, God, I get it. You have every right to be upset with your people. Just bring us into the land, and that'll be fine. In other words, give us the promise. Give us the promise. As long as you keep good on your word, you make good on your word, just bring us up. But Moses was different. Moses said in Exodus thirty-three, fifteen, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, God, the promise isn't enough. We have to have your, we have to have your presence. It's not just about the promises, the benefits. Jesus said, if we seek first him, his kingdom, and his righteousness, everything will be given to us. You can have the castle and not have the king. But when you have the king, you have the castle. You get everything. I believe God is calling us to be a people that pursue his presence. A people that protect his presence. A people that know how to host his presence and make room for his presence and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives individually and corporately. I believe God wants us to protect the presence. To make sure that anything that would grieve him is removed from our lives. Removed from our church. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord my God. Can we stand together? We're going to pray. We're going to pray together this morning. We're going to make room, give place for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives in a greater way. I don't know about you, but I need to be more intentional. I need to learn how to host his presence better. That he is attracted, the Bible says. As we learn to prepare ourselves, as we learn to prepare ourselves, he's attracted. There's things that God is just drawn to. He's drawn to humility. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. (laughs) Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Hallelujah. Lord, have your way. Come on, let's lift our voices. Let's just begin to pray.